many familiar faces this morning and, and even new faces and uh, faces that I've known in the community for a number of years. But uh, since Nance and I's uh, departure for the frozen north, which is not as frozen as Iowa, uh, I remind us all. Uh, so come up on up and visit anytime. Uh, reports have filtered up to us that you've since become part of Christ's community. So it's good to Good to see you on a Sunday morning and to see you part of uh, what is going on here. And uh, grateful for a couple, well, for a lot of things, but two things come to my mind right now. Number one, uh, Pastor Mark has given me the opportunity this morning to open God's Word with you, and uh, what a delight that is. And second of all, that Maryland's worst nightmare, I, I lost a, a heartbeat there for a minute, wasn't that she just found out I was preaching again this morning. <laughs> So, so grateful, but I, I know Marilyn well enough to know she, would, she wouldn't say that publicly anyway, even if she were thinking that and, and having that experience in the moment. So anyway, uh, it, it's good to be home with family. And I don't say that every place, in case you're wondering, you know, the guys that travel around, the gals that travel around and speak here and there and everywhere. Uh, Nance and I knew when we moved to Minnesota that there would always be a part of us, a significant part of us that would, would call Sioux Center and Christ Community home and family. And so, I don't know if you know where, where of this, but families have rhythms, right? Uh, you're part of a family. It, it, it could be a very dysfunctional family. It could be a very uh, gathered together family. It doesn't matter at this point. Every family of which you're part of one, every family has, has a rhythm, certain things you do you, so, somewhat uniquely to your family. And, uh, you know, a couple of months ago when um, Pastor Mark and I were conversing about scheduling and, and when do we make this weekend work with a Pathways workshop at Christ Community and uh, when, when would be that time, uh, we set the date of this weekend of, of uh, January 19th and 20th, and as we were conversing via texting, I think, at that point, uh, he, he eventually said to me, he said, um, you're, you're preaching on the 20th of January, uh, it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I'm paraphrasing what he texted to me now, and uh, are you planning to do something on Sanctity of Human Life or, or other? And I Two months out, to be brutally honest, and I told him this in a text in response, I haven't given a moment's thought to it yet, and I said, which would you prefer? And it's always good to, you know, lean into the current pastor and affirm him in everything you can possibly do and say, and so he, he quickly fired back, I'd like for you to do something on Sanctity of Human Life. And then I realized, okay, I'm going to do that and how many Sanctity of Human Life Sundays have there been? How many Sanctity of Human Life Sundays have I been a pastor of a local church? Uh, 20 here, but then it occurred to me as I did a little bit of research on my library Google that 51 years ago, our nation's Supreme Court decided that it was a constitutional right for termination of life, abortion. And I thought, 50 years, 51 years, that's a long time. 
Nancy and I hope to be married 50 years. We're, we got several years to go yet. Uh, but I got thinking about that. Like, wow, 50 years. It suddenly occurred to me again, 50 years is a long time. And then I said to myself, oh, soul, how have you managed 50 years of the truth that we're, we're reminding ourselves of this morning that every human being is made in the image of God? This a number of things you and I do with 50 years. This, this is, these are my thoughts, and, and see, see how you relate to those. But the, these are truly me this morning, as I've thought for several months about this now. 50 years is, is long enough to get a little numb. We see that in relationships, sadly. Right? I, I hope at my 50th wedding anniversary that Nancy and I are still in love and huggy-kissy, and all, but wait a minute, too much information. Uh, <laughs> But the reality is, in 50 years, a span of time, lots of things happen, things change, challenges are faced. And um, as I looked at my own soul as in regards to this particular day, this moment, I began to realize that over the span of those 50 plus years, it seems like every year there's specific challenges to the truth that you and I know to be true, that every human life is made in the image, created in the image of God. Easy for my heart to hear of school shootings and suddenly turn my attention to mental health issues and lose sight of the fact that we're losing our children in our schools, our principals. Not just out there in the East and the West, but in small town middle America. I turn on my television and I see the horrors of the war in Ukraine and in the Middle East and various other locations on our planet. And I, I look at the rubble in Gaza and, and I can lose sight of the fact that Hamas is now reporting several thousands of lives lost in the midst of that war. And if I'm not careful, even with my theological outlook on life, I can very quickly lose sight of the fact and settle on a false peace that, well, yeah, but can you really trust the numbers of an organization like Hamas anyway? And lose sight of the truth that image bearers of God are so easily disposed of and destroyed. 50 years of time, you can do the number thing, right? I mean, you're with me on this? And you lose sight of the preciousness, the preciousness of every individual in our world and even in this room. So I'd like to invite you this morning to the Word of God because where my soul and where my heart and where my mind finds its appropriate peace and rest is to peel away the numbers as significant as they are and not asking you to lose sight of them, but to come with me in John chapter 9 as we meet one individual, the lowest common denominator 
and we see some things in John chapter 9 that maybe simplify this huge, complex issue that we continue to face in our broken and evil world with the simplicity of a single life. Do you guys still stand when you read the Word of God on Sunday mornings? Randy Harlow does. I don't know about the rest of you. And so uh, let, me, let me invite you to join with me if you so choose and are able. We've got some verses to cover this morning. We're going to look at the entire chapter of John chapter 9 as we, we meet a, a man born blind. Let's listen together as we hear the Word of God read this morning. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night's coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, came back seen. The neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Someone said, It's he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight till they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ... He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, 
He's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, you you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You, You also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, you, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you are born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of our Lord. Father, in your word, we read that with, without revelation, the people run wild. And right now, as we come to your word, help us to hear from you. Help us to Help us to understand and help us to see. In the midst of all the noise of our world and of all the the evil and violence, give us a word from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 9, we, we meet we meet a man who is not a theological dilemma to be siloed, but a transformed life to be celebrated. You don't hear anything else this morning. That, that's the simplicity of the message that we, we discover as we come and pass through John chapter 9. We, we encounter a man born 
in blindness who is not a theological dilemma to be siloed, to be categorized, to be, to be understood in a way that we can, we can relate to in any way from a, from a distance, but we encounter a transformed life to be celebrated. The, the passage is interesting in, in a number of ways. You'll notice as we've read through it this morning, as we, we look at it together now, the, the actual encounter that this man has with Jesus is, is relatively brief, at least in terms of the transforming power that we see Jesus express in, in his life. We, we see him in as Jesus is passing by. Now, you and I have jumped into the Gospel of John all the way into chapter 9, but let me very quickly catch us up to what John has already shared with his readers. Uh, John is, has this glorious message that in the midst of a broken world, that, that in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and, and the, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he came into his own, and even though his own knew him, his own didn't recognize him. And yet, to those who believed in this word, God gives the right to become children of God. And so, this life that has come from above, that has come from heaven, is now coming into the brokenness of, of human experience on this planet. And, and John is now des describing for us the, the uniqueness of this word and this life in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and he's told us from the beginning in chapter 1 that there will be those that will reject even though they're his own people and, and there will be others who will come to faith and become children of God. And so not surprisingly as John begins to tell us and show us the, the, the signs of the, and the power of this life from above that is incredible as turning water into wine is at a wedding in, in Galilee, that Jesus has a series of signs and miracles and, and events in different people's lives that are kind of, in some ways, building to a crescendo of his greatest work, which we, you and I sang about this morning, the destruction of, of death in the grave. And in the process of that, of that movement of John's story, we come to chapter 9 where a man has been born blind and in such reality of the hour, even his disciples are asking a question because like them, we're all part of a culture of death. As, long, as much as we like to long for a culture of life, there is this culture of death that you and I are a part of, the air of which we breathe, and so we, we easily settle on questions like the question that the disciples have as we come to the beginning of this passage. Rabbi, who sinned here? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. See, what we have here is a, is a transformed life in the midst of a, of a culture of death. And really, just for the first 12 verses, does, is, is the, the power of Christ demonstrated 
uh, miraculously in this man's life. The, the, the disciples' question is, is, is so typical, right? I mean, help us understand what's going on here. This man, obviously, we, we know him, we, we know he has a, a particular defect, and it's, it's hard for us at some deep level of our being to, to relate to him because he, he's a blind man, and, and so something's gone wrong here. We need to understand it. We need to comprehend it. And so, Rabbi, who, somebody sinned. Who, who, who has it been? And, and so we, we start the chapter, right? We start this encounter with this, this life from above in Jesus encountering an example of the utter brokenness of human life in a blind man. We're in a passage this morning that helps you and I think through this thing because so easily, like I do with Hamas numbers, and in my, my numbness of the repetition of lives that are lost year after year, that it's, it's easy for us to lose sight of the preciousness of human life, the personal suffering and sin, right? I mean, it so naturally goes together, even theologically. And John, in Genesis chapter 3, right, where God tells us, even before in chapter 2, that the day you eat of this certain tree, you will you will, you will surely die. And so he, here, here, is the, here are the disciples trying to get their heads around it, their, their emotions around it, their, their thinking, their theology around it. Uh, Rabbi, who, who sinned here? And notice Jesus' perspective to that. Just as God dismisses a simplistic view of suffering with Job in the Old Testament, so Jesus here dismisses it with this blind man. You might be here this morning with, a, with an emotional, physical, mental, debilitating condition, right? And, and, and down deep, you're not going to say it out loud, but it's the kind of thing that's going to keep you awake at night and gnawing at your soul, and you're, you're wondering, did, did I... What did I do wrong? What's God got with, with me? We live in this question. It's part of living in a culture of, culture of death. We, we want to make that connection, right? And, and in a, a, a broad theological sense, right, there is a connection. And so that's enough for us to begin to ponder in the darkness of our hours. What's wrong with me? What's God got against me? So Jesus very quickly says to his disciples here, as they're, they're thinking on that, tr- on that path, uh, this man is blind, but it's, it's, it was not that this man sinned or even his parents. What do you see in verse 3? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must do the work the works of him who sent me while it's still day. Night's coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right? The, what, what's the purpose of this 
man born blind. It's, it's not just for suffering, right? It's not just a reminder that we live in a broken world, but this is an opportunity. Your life, as limited as it might be this morning, is, is the opportunity, is an opportunity for Christ to do the works of God in your life. Jesus is the light that brings sight. That's what he's saying to his disciples. That ought not be surprising. In fact, in some ways, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Way back in Isaiah chapter 29 and chapter 35, in chapter 29 in particular of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah writes these words, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. Right? He's saying to a group of people who are sinful and obstinate towards God, you, you've got truth right in front of you in a book, but you, you, it's like you, you can't get the book open anymore. It's like the book is sealed because you you refusing to, to see the truth of it. And so Isaiah sees a day with the present reality in his day to say, there's coming a day when there is one who is coming who will say, read this. In John 9, the passage we're in this morning, that day has come. Jesus has arrived and he's saying to his disciples, uh, I, want you to, I want you to read this. So one of the things the Messiah was going to do upon his coming was to restore sight to the blind. You remember when John the Baptist is in prison and he's saying, hey, uh, he sends his his posse back to Jesus, and he says, go find out from him if he's really the guy, because I'm about to lose my head here, because I've said he is, and I just want to make sure I didn't waste my life. And do you remember what Jesus tells his disciples? Go back and tell John. Tells them a number of things, but one of the things is go back and tell John that the, the blind are receiving their sight. And here we are. See, with Jesus, the existence of human suffering is a call to work, not reflect, to action, not reflection. And so look at verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, said to him, go, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now let me tell you right now, all right, pause button. Bible readers and scholars have had a ball with this verse. Right, you're, you're anticipating now, okay, PR is going to try and give us his own answer here. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, Jesus, uh, you know, there, there, is, there is in fact the, de- the primitive belief that the saliva of heroic figures held magical powers. That's what our wise Bible scholars and commentary writers would say to us this morning. But I'm just thinking, maybe along with you, that I'm not sure that's kind of, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. Uh, is he trying to act like some secular heroic figure to impress us? I, I doubt it. Uh, I, I do observe throughout the Gospels that there are two other occasions, not this is the third, but there are two other occasions in which Jesus spits. Sorry, the kids are okay with that. Uh, cover their ears. I should have given you a warning, Mom and Dad. Uh, and, and their healings, as this one is here. 
And, uh, you know, some ancients, and I, I didn't know this until I read it after I, I did my own observations of this text, but, I, you know, my, my thought was, you know, maybe this is an echo of, of Genesis 1 and 2, where we're told that God makes man from the dust of the earth and breathes his breath into him and gives him life. And so something going on maybe with, with the dirt and the mud and the, the saliva of Jesus and thought that was just me with a crazy idea until, well, actually the early church leaders, a number of them had that idea. But, but guess what? Uh, we don't know. I, I can't explain exactly, definitively at least, why, why Jesus does what he does, but he, he does do it. What we're not to miss, though, and I believe John is, is making this obvious for us in verse 7, look, because he tells us in a little parenthetical, uh, it, when, he's told, when he tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, oh, by the way, that means sent. In John's good news of Jesus, the whole story's culminating at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And on that occasion, Jesus is going to say to his, these same disciples that we were reading about with their question in John chapter 9, he's going to say in John chapter 20, verse 20 and 21, uh, even as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. See, when your eyes are open by Jesus, then you're being sent. You become a sent one. And so in our text... As confusing as whatever's going on with mud and saliva and, and, and the anointing of the man's, he doesn't just smear the mud on his eyes, he anoints him and tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed, came back seeing. I can only imagine the blind man at least knew these things. One, I, I'm in a hopeless situation here. And I, I really need to do something about this mud. And when I wash, I come back seeing. Well, following, that's the miracle, right? Man's born blind, man now sees. Uh, great story. Way to go, Jesus. Awesome power. Oh, you're, you're fulfilling prophecy in the meantime, right? You're, you're, you're declaring that today's the day eyes are opened and we blind people can now begin to see. So you can imagine why the neighbors investigate. He was a beggar, right? Look, look, at, look at verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? See, we silo people that way, don't we? We, we, we know certain people. You know, there's names in this community. It's true of every community, regardless of size. True in a city, true in a small town. You mention a, a mere name of someone that, that you know, and, and you, you've got not just a person in your mind, you've got a description of what he or she is like, right? Maybe her, maybe her weaknesses. Maybe her strengths. You've got a role to play, right? And so we, we got them categorized, siloed in a certain way. They had this. I mean, he was a beggar. The man's testimony, right? Uh, then how were your eyes open? He answered, 
The man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went, washed, received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. Can you imagine? You, you're seeing for the first time. And Jesus does kind of get on, get on with his day. And he's, he doesn't know a whole lot. So the neighbors have to do something. So they, they bring him now to a series of interviews. I don't know how else to say it. And oh, by the way, at this point in the narrative, we're told, oh, but this, this was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If you and I have been reading the gospel, we're going, oh, no. Here we go again. Jesus in trouble. He's, 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 Jesus is always in trouble for two things, right? He, he does stuff on Sabbath that he ought not be doing, according to the tradition of the, of the Jewish people. And he, he's always got this thing about equating himself to be equal with God. Uh, if he could just drop those two things, he probably would have never had any run-ins with too many people. But he's, he insists on those two things. He's working on the Sabbath. And he's got this, this uh, uncanny ability to always point out the fact that he, he speaks for God. He's equal with God. And so... Here they are. Now they're bringing this blind man who's now a seeing man. And the neighbors who are saying, he used to be a beggar, and we think you ought to check this out because you guys are the religious authorities. And, and so we have in verses 13 through 17, the first of three interviews where the Pharisees are having some time with him. So the Pharisees asked him, how'd you receive your sight? And he said to them, verse 15, put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. There it is. Pharisees have a silo problem, right? I mean, uh, no, no God's going to work on the Sabbath. But others said, how, how can a man who is a sinner... Silo problem, we, everybody's a sinner, right? I mean, uh, this guy's a sinner. How can that guy do these good works, these, such signs? And John tells us, you know, th there's even a division among the Pharisees about, about this situation. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, I love this response. Uh... He's a prophet. Now, we don't know exactly how he said it. We, we know the words he said. John tells us that, but we don't, we don't know the intonation. This man knows enough. He doesn't know everything, but he knows enough to say uh, he's, he's somebody who speaks the word of God and things happen. He's a prophet. And so the man's eyes are beginning to open wider. He's beginning to see more clearly. While the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with a blinding theological mist. There's another occasion. Notice it in verses 18 through 23. This one, this interview is with the Jews, the Jews with, the, with his parents. 
Verse 22, notice it, isn't it, that the parents are unwilling to risk excommunication from the local synagogue. We'll eventually learn in verse 34, the man is not. I've got to pause there just long enough to, to make note of this. I wrote this down, e- easier to remain in your own silo. That's the challenge of the acuity of sight. If we're not careful, this will happen to all of us because it's always easier just to remain in your own silo. So the Pharisees have another interview with the man, a second interview in verses 24 through 34. And notice in verse 24, they say, so for the second time, they they call the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, believe me, right? uh, What the Pharisees are not doing here is they're not saying to this man, hey, uh, open mic time, bro. Uh, Give us us your testimony of how you you became a seen man. No, they, they don't want to hear that. When the Pharisees say, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner, this is almost word for word the words that we have when ancient Israel says to Achan, remember that guy, he was the guy who committed that private sin that became all too public, that kept the, the, the Israelites from conquering a city. And so they went by Lot, they came down to Achan, and they came to Achan. Everybody knows now he's the man that caused Israel's defeat in the battlefield, and they say to Achan, Give glory to God, confess your sin. That's pretty much what they're saying. Okay, now that the whole room knows you're guilty of sin, why don't you tell us exactly that? That's what they're saying to this man. And the man says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see. Um, This is worth writing down. Demanding everyone see the world through your own cynical eyes is the worst stage of blindness. See, it would be just absolutely peachy keen and wonderful if I could stand here before you today and say, you know what, Jesus gives a blind man sight, but there's so much more going on here because there's, there's an entire religious structure even that are in the process of blindness. Notice the growing faith of this man. They said to him, what, what, did he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, you, you wouldn't listen. Why, what, you want to hear it again? You also want to become his disciples? You know, we train people for years, don't we, Pastor Mark, to be a disciple of Jesus, to get them to that place where they, they can give that kind of bold testimony. This guy, he, he hardly knows any better. 
the, the amazing thing about this man is, you know, he, he is in no way ready to pass his, his uh, systematic theology class in seminary on soteriology. I, I, mean, I left a few of you in the dust on that one, didn't I? He, let, me, let me boil it down, right? So we all, we all get it, right? Because this is where this man's living. He can't defend everything there is to know about the person of Jesus Christ. He, he's a prophet. He, he, but when he says words, they seem to be the words of God and things happen. Uh, he, I've told you what he's done already and you, you didn't listen, but, but you, is it, do you want to become his disciple? And they reviled him. You're his disciple. We're, we're the disciples of Moses. If you'd have been reading the Gospel of John prior to chapter 9, back in chapter 5, we discover Jesus points this out to these very same Pharisees. Um, you read the words of Moses, but you don't realize Moses was talking about me. And so here they are, determined declaring that they are disciples of Moses. And so this man says in verse 30, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, this Jesus, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. I don't know if that's, a, if that's actually literally true. This man's he doesn't know of anybody, and, and I, I'm, the, the power of God in Jesus has so come upon me, he's saying that I, I, I can see. There's no other way to describe it. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do this thing. He could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and will you teach us? And they cast him out. One of my heroes is a man by the name of Henry Blackaby. Never met him, but I love everything he writes. He says, an exalted view of God brings a clear view of sin and a realistic view of self. A diminished view of God brings a reduced concern for sin and an inflated view of self. That's what we got going on here. Not just in our text, but in our world. In our own souls, in our own ways of thinking. Right? I mean, and this, this blind man from birth who has now received his sight is having his eyes open, not just his physical eyes, but he's beginning to see things and understand things and see the world in a way that discovers not only is everyone made in the image of God, yes, let's proclaim that, but we also have a Savior sent from above, Jesus Christ, who opens the blind so that they might see, the eyes of the blind so they might see. So there's the question for us this morning. Do, do we see the world and its people through a gospel lens? A preliminary division is happening in our text. The Pharisees can't even, the Jewish leaders can't even, can't even agree 
But what is going on is a, a child of light is discovering a new world while the children of darkness are losing their eyesight. And so they throw them out, stuck in their silos, don't know what to do with this man. They throw him out. You notice as our chapter concludes in verse 35 that when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, he found him. Jesus took the initiative. He finds him, and he brings him beyond an immature faith to a decisive and knowledgeable faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? Sir, that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This man is a beautiful picture, isn't he, of Psalm 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother and religious authorities, for that matter, forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Jesus Christ sees the blind, the blindness that we're in, and he calls us to sight, to see a world through a gospel lens that begins to change our cynicism and our blindness and our, our, the safety valves that we have that keep it from intruding in our own personal lives. And he calls us to come see the fullness of life as image bearers of God and redeemed, sight-restored people of Jesus. I've been retired now from pastoral ministry for a year and a half, almost two years. Probably some of you are wondering, what, what are you doing with all your time? Well, one of the, it's bizarre, some of the things you get to do. One thing is I went to my 50th high school reunion. Didn't see it coming, guys. Did not retire from Christ Community Pastor, lead pastor role, and say, you know what, I'm really retiring, so I need to get to my 50th high school reunion. Didn't go to any other high school gatherings since, I, I hadn't been on my high school campus since the day I graduated from, from high school. And past the 10-year, the 20-year, the whatever year, uh, they're getting together to drink almost monthly. And I, I just, you know, never was in St. Louis and wouldn't have gone anyway. Sounded, looked to me like a big uh, drinking party and I wasn't interested. And, and then my, my sister-in-law, who drove halfway across the country from New York State to Fargo, North Dakota, to her 50th high school reunion, uh, graduated the same year from uh, same year for, with me from high school, said to me as she was uh, spent the night at our house with my brother, going back driving back to New York. Oh, Randy, you ought to really go. Oh, okay. And Brian, of course, who's seven years older than I. Yeah, yeah, Rand, you should go. I, I didn't go. I, I wish I would have gone. I had a blast at my wife's 50th reunion. I'm going. Whoa, this is weird. It always seemed weird to me. So if you're on, in that category, I understand. So, but I thought, well, Nance, what do you think? Well, her thoughts were, listen, I've always been a warrior. I went to Grand City High School. I'm a warrior. As a student, I'm a warrior as a teacher and now retirement. I've always been a warrior. You Huskies go off and be a Husky for the weekend if you want to. I ain't going. 
So she released me, and so I called my, my best high school buddy, called him, I said, Rob, I, I don't know why I'm doing this other than uh, my sister-in-law challenged me, and she said she had a, a blast at hers, and I said, you have any interest in going back to the 50th reunion? Yeah, I was thinking about doing that if you or something, you know, your cousin wanted to do it. My cousin, we called him, no, 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 I don't have time for that kind of nonsense. So Rob and I decided, okay, we're going to hang together, we're going to do 50th reunion, you know, because you're always wondering, is anybody going to even remember me? I'm in a class of 960 some odd people, and about 175 of us took the bother to show up 50 years later. A few of us had passed on, and we're going to go celebrate, at least we're still kicking and screaming, you know, or something, and see who, who do we remember, and is that cute girl, she's still cute, whatever happened to her kind of stuff, you know? And so Rob and I decided, okay, but we're going to be, we're going to be tight. We're going to go be back and be Huskies for a weekend. And it was an entire weekend, and so I flew in, and Rob flew in from Florida, and here we are, and, and the first night was uh, an upper room reserved for us at so-and-so's tavern, and so we went up to the upper, it was not the upper room that you read about in the Bible. It's a different upper room. There was wine present, so I guess there were some similarities. Uh, but there was a, as I thought about it, I, I thought, okay, there's, there's just one or two people I really want to make sure I see. One was a guy by the name of Don Jelly. Don, Don and I met each other. Well, we played hockey together in middle school, eighth grade. We call it junior high back in the day because I'm, I'm a dinosaur. And, uh, but we, we had 10th grade English together and neither one of us were particularly interested in the subject matter. And so we sat in the back of the room and Don wrote love letters to his girlfriend, Gloria. And, uh, I just, I'd do this number, just see what he was writing. Cause I, I tried to learn how to, you know, how to be romantic, I guess. I don't remember all that vividly and taking notes, you know, Don's note. And he'd fold it up like one of those paper footballs, and he delivered, in fact, a few days, I, I, my next hour class was with Glory, and often I was the carrier, my only time of the U.S. Postal Service, <laughs> and uh, I'd say, Glory, here's a note from Don, and she'd open it, and I'd try to sneak a peek and see what, you know, would she start crying, would she smile, what, what was going on here, this was love, I was discovering it from, you know, the outside looking in, and Don, Don was coming to the reunion, and I, Don and I were Facebook friends, and I knew enough to know that he had become a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, pastor. And the only thing I knew about Don was he liked to play hockey, and he, he loved Gloria. So the upper room discourse, Don and I find each other. Don, I said, you, you remember me? I'm Randy Whitman. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played hockey together. Yeah, okay, okay. We touched all the bases. Whew, somebody re recognized me. I said, Don, I said, tell me, tell me the Don Jelly story. Don, did you, you weren't a Christian, were you, in high school? I mean, I, I, I had prayed about this weekend. I said, Lord, help me just to be a faithful witness of Jesus, because I'm not sure my testimony was all that clear. I, I had to I could go back and repair some stuff, get some things right with people. So, Don, you, you weren't a believer. What were you, I mean, can you imagine having to ask that 50 years later? We spent all this time together, Don, but I don't think we ever talked about Jesus. 
God said, oh, Randy, I said, let me, let me tell you this. He said, I, no, he says, I, I graduated from high school. I wanted to be a hippie. I wanted to be a hippie. So I grew my hair long, and I, I got all this facial hair going. And he said, I, I went to Europe, and I, I stayed in youth hostels, and, and I'm just kind of traveling around Europe, man, just kind of spending mom and dad's money and, and thinking, man, this, is, this adulthood is good stuff, man. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to be a hippie. He said, but I, I went to this one uh, hostel that was full, and so I ended up at this mission. I didn't know it was a mission, he said, but it was a Seventh-day Adventist mission, and this, this guy and this, his wife started speaking to my life, and this guy says to me this real spooky thing. He said, Don, I don't know you, but I think God's calling you to be a pastor. Don said, you're a crazy, whacked-out old man. He said, I, I, I'm a hippie, man. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Next day at breakfast, the same old man sits down, has a bowl of cereal with Don. He said, Don, you're going to be a pastor. No, no, I'm not. I, I don't know where you're getting off with this. I, uh, next day at breakfast, the man says, Don, by next month, you're going to be in a Bible school back in the United States. <laughs> I ain't going to no Bible school, man. You are, you are off your rocker, sir. Well, month, one month later, Don was back in the States at a Bible school. He said, I, I, I'm sure I was the only unbeliever at this seven-day Adventist Bible school, man. I, on Saturday, when they were going to church, I, I didn't know any better. I'm, I'm just thinking I'm going for a bike ride. And I, all of a sudden, I realized bike rides aren't, aren't happening in the seven-day Adventist on Saturday. And so he, he said... Um, while I was at Bible school, I encountered Christ. And I found a purpose. And I've traveled to Africa. We, I told him a little bit about my travels. He says, yeah, I was in Mozambique, and they, 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 were, they, they made it clear they were going to kill me. But I had known the, the town the town prince, and the prince said, it was a believer, said, no, you're, you're going to preach tonight, and we'll have a bodyguard for you. And, and God used Don to preach the gospel in Mozambique to a group of people who, you know, terrorist organizations had, had a bounty on his head. So here's Don at 50th Reunion saying, no, I, I was not a believer in high school. And I'm thinking, man, who saw that coming? God did. When I went in that upper room that Friday night, I walked in the door. I, I don't have my name tag on yet. I, I don't, I'm thinking nobody knows me from Adam. And Mary throws her arms around me and hugs me. That was about the time I was glad Nance decided, yeah, she made the right call. Don't go to the, don't do it with the Husky reunion. You remember me? And Rob and I, of course, we're, we're hooked to the hip. I told the truth. I said, nah, I'm not sure. I'm Mary. Oh, Mary. Sure, I remember you, Mary. Rob and I made a plan before we went for the weekend. We were going we to sit together. In fact, I, I bought the tickets for both of us, and I said, Rob Steen and Randy Widbin are going to be at the same table. We don't care where you put us, but we're together. What happens on Saturday night? Rob's up there with the rest of our buddies that we hung out with, and I'm at a table with a bunch of Home Heights Elementary kids that are now really old and really fat and really everything. <laughs> and I'm going, those rascals, why did they put me here? Well, guess what? 
Mary walks in and sits next to me with her husband. And the announcements are made, right, before we eat dinner. And, and make sure you, you see our Rittner Hall of Fame plaques of people from your, our class that made the Rittner Hall of Fame. And Mary went off. That's, what I, that's why I didn't want to come. But I shouldn't say it that loud, but she's heard, she said it loud enough for our whole table of eight to hear it. Whoa, Mary, what's, what's going on here? He said, you know, that's, it's all about prestige and who... who I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, Friday night, Mary and I had a little conversation. I said, Mary, what'd you do with your life? What'd you do? You know, I told her I, I was a pastor and saw a lot of life change and wouldn't trade it for the world. Mary, Mary said, I was, a, I was an oncology nurse. I'm in, living in Springfield, Missouri. I said, do you happen to know a doctor by the name of Yvonne Rayburn? No, she didn't know that, but... She told me what she had done with her life, where she was currently living. So I said, when she went off on that, I said, Mary, I said, an oncology nurse, huh? But not in the Rittner Hall of Fame. I said, over the course of the last 40 plus years, I said, did you ever meet with a, a patient, patient's family, and just give a word of encouragement when they were facing the greatest physical battle of their life? Oh, yeah, that's, that's just part of being an oncology nurse. I said, well, maybe it's never occurred to you before. I said, but you're in God's Hall of Fame. He didn't, he didn't miss it. He saw that. I said, I don't, I don't know where you're at with Jesus. But my prayer is, Mary, you, you, you understand that what you're done, what you do in Jesus' name is seen by the God of the universe, whether you're in a hall, whether you've got a plaque on any wall. So I'm probably speaking to a bunch of people who never made their high school hall of fame. If you did, congratulations. I'm not going to go off on you. But um, the gospel, an encounter with Jesus Christ, opened your eyes to see a world that needs you to respond and to speak words of life when all we ever hear are words of death. Amen.